0: Our sermon text this morning is Genesis chapter 4, verses 8 to 16. And This text is printed for you on the back of your order of worship, if you'd like to follow along there. I encourage you now to listen once more to God's holy and inerrant word. Genesis 4 tells us this. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. And the Lord, that is Yahweh, said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And Yahweh said, What have you done? My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then Yahweh said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, Vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold, and Yahweh put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of Yahweh and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Thus far, the reading of God's word, it is absolutely true. And it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, you've caused all the Holy Scripture to be written for our learning. And we ask now that by your Spirit, you would enable us to hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest even this portion of your word. That we might know you and of your love and that we might hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life, that you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The horror of our text this morning can hardly be overstated. Earlier in chapter 4, as we looked at last week, the Lord has drawn near to Cain and has warned him about the sin that is crouching like a beast, like a dragon, like a serpent, at his door, desiring to overpower and consume him. But Cain refuses to repent. He refuses to change course, and he speaks to his brother, Abel, enticing him out into the field. And there, as the text tells us, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and he killed him. Several things are important to understand to fully grasp the horror of this murder and Cain's transgression, not only against his brother and his parents, but most ultimately against God. First, we know from the end of Genesis 4 that the Lord soon would give Seth to Adam and Eve as a replacement for Abel after the death at his hands at the hands of Cain. And then at the beginning of Genesis 5, we're told that Adam was 130 years old when Seth was born. Taking these facts together, it seems very likely that at the time of Abel's murder, he and Cain were already mature men, perhaps even at least 100 years old, already with wives and families of their own. This story of Cain's murder of his brother is not Two immature teenage boys fighting over something petty in a moment of anger with an unfortunate result. That is not what it is at all. No, this is the story of a mature and full-grown man striking down his brother with violence in a bid for power and primacy over the human race. This wasn't just about Cain having a a grudge against Abel. This was about Cain seeking to dominate the human race at the very beginning of its life and being willing to kill his brother to bring about that outcome. It's also important to remember that Cain does not kill his brother here in a a peak of anger, right? It's it's not just a momentary thing. No, this murder is cold-blooded. It's thought out. Cain has received that warning from the Lord. He has consciously rejected God's authority and God's rebuke. Cain has falsely led his brother out into the field using deception to put him in a vulnerable place. And then he turns against Abel and kills him, as the text says. The final horror of this story is just the violence of it. Remember, there's no swords or spears at this time in human history. There are no bows and arrows. There's no advanced human tools for warfare. In fact, as far as we know from the scriptures, no one had actually ever physically died before this moment. And yet we know from the Lord's own mouth that Abel died through bloodshed, his blood poured out into the ground. Taking those facts together, if Cain killed his brother, there was only one way to do it, by beating him to death, perhaps with a rock or a branch of a tree, until Abel's blood flowed into the earth. I know it may be hard to think about these things, but we we can't turn our face away from the truth of this story, even the horror of it if we're going to understand its meaning, and particularly if we're going to understand the significance of the Lord's response to Cain's sin. You see, right here at the headwaters of human history, right at the beginning of the scriptural narrative, is is recorded for us one of the most heinous sins that human beings will ever commit, ever. Given the context, the innocence of the moment, the horror and the violence of what Cain does. So given this reality, how will God respond, right? That's the great question. Who really is this God of heaven and earth? How will he deal with this horror in his creation? Our passage this morning reveals clearly and unmistakably that the God who made heaven and earth is also the God who shows mercy And patience in his judgment. Remember, as we heard earlier this morning from Exodus 34, when God revealed himself to Moses at Mount Sinai, he did so with these these words. He said, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Now God's justice and holiness as he reveals himself in this seminal moment in Exodus 34 in Old Testament history. It means that he will, his justice and holiness mean, means that he will by no means perish the thought. He will by no means clear the guilty. Yes, that is true. And yet, in the midst of God's promise to judge, ultimately, there is also this promise, that he will be slow to anger. That he will show patience in his judgment. That he will be long-suffering with his creation. That he will be always ready to forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. Our passage this morning, I would argue, demonstrates that God's own self-description in Exodus 34 is rooted in his historical actions with humanity. There is absolute integrity between who God claims to be and who he reveals himself to be in time and space. For in this passage, God is unmistakably slow to anger. Consider for a moment how the Lord might have responded Cain after his sin what might Genesis 4 have contained he might example for example simply have executed Cain right when he came to him and said where is your brother clearly Cain deserved that if anyone deserved to be put to death Cain did if the Lord had put Cain to death who could have complained Cain had killed his brother in cold blood, and he had done so in a deeply heinous way. His action was not just murder. It was also high-handed and deliberate rebellion against God. But God does not kill Cain. I mean, do you see that? I mean, that's remarkable in this passage. Even after Cain lies and compounds his sin, and seeks to deceive God, scoffing at his authority, saying, I don't know where Cain is. Am I my brother's keeper? Still, God does not put him to death. Still, God does not execute this man. Instead, God says Cain will be cursed from the ground, that the ground will not easily now produce fruit from his labor, and he declares that Cain will be a wanderer, and a fugitive on the earth. Now, fascinatingly, Cain, rather than just simply realizing that he is getting an incredible amount of mercy from God merely by walking away with his life after murdering his brother, at this point, Cain complains to God. Do you see that? And, and a remarkable example of apparently unintentional irony Cain says to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Whoever finds me will kill me. Now, if it had been me handing out judgment that day, I'm pretty sure I would have had something smart to say to Cain in response to that complaint. Something like, oh, wait a second, Cain, you're afraid someone's going to kill you? You mean like you just killed your brother? Like that? But that's not how the Lord responds. Even to Cain's false complaint that his punishment is too heavy for him to bear, the Lord is slow to anger. He doesn't even point out Cain's fundamental hypocrisy. He simply agrees that Cain will be in danger because of what he has done. And he promises, he swears a vow that he will protect the life of Cain from harm. Marking Cain and swearing that if anyone puts Cain to death, he will then be subject to the sevenfold vengeance of God. Beloved, right here at the beginning of the scriptures, we learn something essential about the character of the one and only living and true God. Yes, he will judge. Yes, by no means will he clear the guilty but his judgment will almost always be delayed he will not judge or punish immediately no he will be patient with his judgment astonishingly patient from the perspective of human beings and even in response to our unrepentant sin still He will be merciful. Why does God do this? Why does he behave in this way? Why does he allow Cain to walk away from the scene? Not dead, but rather with his life protected by God. The Apostle Paul, living thousands of years later after these events, he reflects on this Reality, the slowness of God's judgment. And he writes these words to the church in Rome. He says, do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Beloved, Paul is interpreting theologically for us. This aspect of God's character. And he's saying the slowness of God's judgment. His patience and forbearance in his judgment is a kindness. And it is a kindness that is showed to the human race that is meant to lead us somewhere. It's meant to lead us not to presumption. Not to believing that God will never judge because he is not yet judged but to lead us to repentance so that we will be prepared for his judgment. And certainly that was God's intention for Cain. He does not judge Cain immediately for the sin of murdering Abel, not in a full sense at least, even though Abel's blood was crying out from the ground for justice. Instead, God protects Cain's life. He sends him out to wander from place to place, Now, the scriptures don't tell us how long Cain lived, but given the typical lifespans of that time in history and God's divine protection on Cain's life from violence, it seems likely that Cain lived for hundreds and hundreds of years after he murdered his brother. And in all those years, he experienced God's kindness, God holding back his judgment, that was meant to lead Cain to repentance. Now, does Cain repent? Ultimately, we're not told for sure, although the rest of Genesis 4 doesn't give us a lot of hope that he does. But the important point here is to notice, right here at the beginning of the scriptural narrative, one of the most significant aspects of God's character is this. God does judge. Yes, he is holy and righteous. He will by no means clear the guilty, but his judgment will almost always be delayed in time. And this delay in his judgment, this patience in his judgment, is a demonstration of his kindness kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. Now, we see this pattern of God's delayed judgment all throughout the scripture, right? When God judges the world for its wickedness in Genesis 6 and 7 by sending the flood to cover the earth, he doesn't do it immediately. He's patient. First, he finds Noah. Then he tells Noah to build an ark. He doesn't just You know, boom, sort of supernaturally provide him with an ark. He says, Noah, you've got to build this massive boat with your own hands, which would then be a visible testimony to all the surrounding people that the flood was coming, that God's judgment was coming. We don't know exactly how long it took Noah to build his ark, but given the size of the project, it must have taken a number of years, even decades. And for all of those years, those around him received a highly visible warning that God's judgment was coming. It had been delayed, but it was going to come. And this kindness was meant to lead them to repentance. In the exodus from Egypt, God judges Pharaoh, yes, but only after a series of ten extremely dramatic plagues, each of which were intended to convince Pharaoh to repent of his sins and release Israel from her slavery. God judges the Canaanites, yes, but only after 400 years, half a millennia almost, from the time of Abraham to the time of Joshua, during which time he allows the wickedness of the Canaanites to continue, apparently without interruption at all, before the people of Israel finally come to the walls of Jericho to execute the judgment of God against them. And of course, God's patience and his judgment is demonstrated nowhere so clearly as it is with his people Israel. As we heard our Lord describe in the parable this morning from the Gospel, Israel rebels against the Lord in the wilderness, refuses to go into the promised land, that he had prepared for them, even though he had delivered these very same people from the house of slavery in Egypt. But the Lord, notice, does not strike them down dead. He does not wipe them out. Instead, he gives that generation that turned against him 40 years to embrace repentance in the wilderness before they die. And then, once the children of those men and women are in the land... Israel almost immediately turns against the Lord, giving herself over to idolatry. Remember, this was the one thing that she could not do, and yet she does it almost immediately. Back in Deuteronomy, the Lord warns Israel specifically against the sin of idolatry again and again. He explicitly forbids it from them in the first and second commandments that he gives them. But the story of Israel's life in the land almost from the very beginning, is a story of almost constant idolatry that the Lord himself compares again and again to adultery. There are some exceptions to this, of course. There are some faithful periods, but again and again and again, the people give themselves over to worshiping false idols, communing with false gods. The most heinous sin possible that they could commit against the one and only true and living God. The one who had chosen them and delivered them from slavery. But what does the Lord do? He delays his judgment. He sends prophets to his people. He sends Elijah and Isaiah and Hosea and Jeremiah. And a host of others And each of these prophets warn Israel again and again, warn Judah again and again to turn from their sin, to worship the Lord alone. And it is only after hundreds and hundreds of years that finally, in the end, the Lord judges His people and destroys their city and their temple. And sends them into exile in Babylon. Beloved, this is who God is. Yes, he is holy and righteous and he judges sin. But always slowly. Always with patience and mercy. And this kindness is meant to lead to our repentance. Even as we look around the world today, as we think about the course of human history, we can see God's kindness and patience on display with the nations of the world, including our own. Now, some of us might be frustrated about this, right? We might be frustrated about the delay that exists in God judging the wickedness of the world. And to a certain extent, that frustration is understandable. Right? I wonder, as I read this story in Genesis 4, how did Adam and Eve feel about God's decision to let Cain walk away, apparently scot-free, from the murder of their son, from the broken and bloody body of Abel? Surely they would have struggled to understand why God did not immediately enact full justice for the murder of Abel. Surely they would have struggled to understand why God protected Cain's life instead of taking it from him. And we ourselves can wrestle with this aspect of God's character in the same way, both on a, on a large scale, right? As we look around the world and we see the evil of the nations, including our own, as well as on a very personal scale, as we consider the sins of those who have, who have harmed us, who have violated us, And seem to have so far gotten away with it. Have not been judged by God for the ways they have harmed us and sinned against us. But friends, if we're frustrated by this aspect of God's character. If we feel that tension between the judgment of God that we long for and the patience that he shows in bringing it. Then we are in good company. Because the scriptures are full of the people of God wrestling with this tension the fall of the cries of the righteous asking god to come in judgment don't wait any longer the people of god say come and judge think of the psalms as the psalmists again and again and again ask god to to not be slow come quickly and judge the wicked. You can't read or pray the Psalms at all without seeing this emphasis, this cry for judgment all over the place. Or think of the souls of the martyrs in Revelation 6 who cry out to the Lord and say, how long, Lord Jesus, before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? Or think of the apostles in Acts 1, shortly after Jesus' resurrection, who ask him with eager expectation, Lord, now, now will you at this time restore the kingdom? Indeed, this aspect of submitting in this particular way to God's sovereignty, as we long for the fullness of God's judgment against evil, and we wait for it to come without any control over when it will come, is one of the most profound tensions of the Christian life. And as we wait in that place of longing, as we look around at the world and see the canes of the world, the canes in our lives, seeming to escape scot-free in the midst of all their evil deeds, God certainly doesn't answer every single question that we might have about why. But he does, in his scriptures, tell us at least two things that will help us wait and help us to trust him. And we'll close with this. First, as we have meditated on length today, God's patience in his judgment is rooted in his essential character. It is who he is. It is rooted in his love and his mercy. His kindness, even to the wicked, is meant to lead to repentance for those to whom he delays his judgment. And friends, we should be thankful that this is the character of our God. Even though it creates tension for us as we live in the world with evil men. We should be thankful for this character, this aspect of God's character, for we need God's patience and forbearance too, do we not? Indeed, I would dare to suggest that the only reason that any of us have been given the window of opportunity ourselves to repent of our sins and come to the Lord Jesus for forgiveness is because of this very same pattern of God's patience and the delay in his judgment that we see in Genesis 4 with Cain and that reality that we ourselves are also saved by God's patience and judgment as we look around at the evil done to us, or the evil in the world generally. That is worth remembering. God also has been patient with us. We should not begrudge him his patience with others. Indeed, if we are wise, I think we will learn to say, as the Apostle Paul did, as the Apostle Paul did near the end of his life, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost." Beloved, I am confident that the reason the Lord Jesus has not yet judged the nations. Is because he waits for their repentance. Just as he has waited for yours and for mine. And I suspect also that the one who with all authority in heaven and earth commanded his apostles to go and make disciples of all the nations means for them to do it. And that is why he waits. The second thing though, we must remember as we wait for God's judgment is simply this. Though God's judgment may be delayed, still, beloved, it will come. That glorious day will come. That day that is a comfort to all who belong to him. All those who wait for his appearing, as the Apostle Paul says. That day of judgment will come. And remember, the prophet has told us, if God's judgment seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. Thus says the prophet Habakkuk. And he adds this, he says, for it is in this way that the righteous have always lived by faith. As they wait for the demonstration of God's justice in its fullness. For friends, we are not those who look around at the wickedness and evil of the world and say, the Lord God does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. No, we are not of those. No, we are those who say, full of faith and hope and confidence with the psalmist, we say, the needy will not always be forgotten. The needy will not always be forgotten. And the hope of the poor will not perish forever. For our Lord will come with glory to judge the living and the dead. His judgment is slow, but it comes. It comes. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the patience that you demonstrate with Cain here. The patience that you have demonstrated to all of us. And we ask, Lord, that you will grant us the grace of repentance. That we would not presume upon your kindness, but would confide ourselves, give ourselves over to the one who is our refuge. And in him we would wait for the judgment that he will bring. We prayed in Christ our Lord. Amen.